It would convict and save and shepherd and comfort. God, we pray that you would use your word to comfort your people this morning. God, we pray that you would speak tenderly to your people through your word, even as we look at hard truths. God, would you deal gently with us? God, I pray that you would grant us, all who hear me, including me, repentance where we need it, and a more resolute faith and confidence in your goodness. God, we pray that your word would not come forth in word only, but in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. And would you do this for your name's sake? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you'll open your Bibles to Joshua 24, it's the final chapter of Joshua. Uh, even though we look at the final chapter this morning, this will not be the final sermon in this great book. There's just too much in this chapter for us to cover. So next week, we'll finish with the short conclusion at the end. This morning, we'll take a look at the first section, verses 1 through 28. And this chapter records the second of two farewell speeches that Joshua gave to the people of Israel after God had given them rest and inheritance in the land of Canaan, like he promised. And the last time we were in Joshua together, in chapter 23, we heard some of the parting words of Joshua for God's people. And in chapter 24, this second farewell speech, we see some of the same themes addressed. But there are also several nuances and emphases in this farewell speech that are not present in the previous chapter, and we'll try especially to lean into those this morning. So a brief overview of chapter 24 before we dive into the details. In the first half, verses 1 through 13, Joshua brings to the people a word from the Lord. He says, thus says the Lord. And he lays out the foundations of serving the Lord. And we understand that those verses are the foundations for serving the Lord because of how they set up the rest of the chapter where Joshua issues forth another charge to serve the Lord. Let's look at verse 1, which is an introduction where Joshua gathers the people to hear these words. Verse 1, Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem, and summoned the elders, the heads, the judges, and the officers of Israel. And they presented themselves before God. That is highly significant language. They presented themselves before God. That's what happened at Mount Sinai. After the Lord saved them out of Egypt, they presented themselves before God at the foot of the mountain, and God personally met them and entered into a covenant with them. At the end of this chapter, there will be a renewal or a reaffirmation of that covenant that God made with Israel at Sinai. And so the people present themselves before God again, and Joshua brings a word, as I said, first of all, to lay the foundations for serving the Lord. Why should Israel choose to serve the Lord? I see four elements given in these verses that provide a solid foundation for answering that question. They are election, redemption, preservation, and inheritance. 
verse 2, Joshua begins laying that foundation and introduces, first of all, God's election of Abraham and by implication, God's election of all his people stemming from the call of Abraham. Look at verse 2 with me. And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates River. Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. I I don't know of any other verse in the Bible that tells us what Abraham was doing in his homeland before God called him. What was he doing? He was worshiping idols with his dad and his brother. So as God begins to address his people through Joshua and gives them reasons to serve him, he reminds them where they came from. And he doesn't start with them in slavery in Egypt and Moses leading them out. You have to go back further, Israel, to understand your heritage. Your heritage begins with Abraham worshiping idols in Ur of the Chaldeans on the other side of the Euphrates in the land that would become Babylon. Well, if that's where you came from, how did you end up being the Lord's people? Because God graciously freely chose and called your father Abraham when he was lost like the rest of humanity. Not because Abraham was doing anything in Ur to commend himself to God. He was serving false gods of man's making. And in a most glorious display of sovereign grace and free goodness, God called Abraham out of the idolatry and land of his forefathers called him out of darkness and into God's light. And this verse in Joshua makes the graciousness of God's purposes of election so clear. Abraham was not called by God because he was righteous. God did not create a special people for himself by finding the most worthy man on the planet. Abraham was totally depraved, like the rest of mankind, Spiritually enslaved, living in service of idols. And then verse 3 tells us, God took him. The whole world was plunged in darkness. And a single ray of sovereign grace shone down from heaven and lifted Abraham. And God took him. And gave him promises. And gave him faith to believe those promises. And the Lord wants the people of Israel gathered before Joshua in the land of Canaan in these times to remember, first of all, long ago your fathers served other gods far away from here. You get it? You could be Babylonian idol worshipers right now. Not a distinct people of God at all if God had not graciously chose to intervene. There is nothing... That you or any man has done or can do that would serve as the basis for God's call and election. God calls and chooses according to his free mercy and special love. And so Israel was supposed to see the calling and election of Father Abraham, the sinner, and think, wow, this is where it all began. 
From there flows our salvation. And did you know the same is true for you? You should see the calling and election of Father Abraham, the sinner, and think that is where it all began for me too. From God's gracious call of Abraham flows our salvation. Did you know that? Galatians 3 says, Christ became a curse for us, hanging on a cross of wood so that we could receive the blessings promised Abraham. And the end of Galatians 3 says, if you are Christ's, then you are sons of Abraham and heirs according to promise. Dale Ralph Davis says that there is a people of God at all hangs on the single thread of the mere good pleasure of God who for no other apparent reason took hold of our father Abraham, the sinner. Verse 3. Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan and made his offspring many. I gave him Isaac. So these events listed in verse 3 recall almost point by point the promises that God freely made to Abraham while he was in Ur to call him out. In Genesis 12, God said, leave your land and I'll give you and your descendants this land. Leave your father's house and I will give you a son, though you are barren. And more than that, I will multiply your descendants like the stars in the heavens. Verse 3 reminds us of these promises God gave to Abraham in conjunction with his gracious call. And God has kept those promises. Well, what a way to begin laying the foundations of serving God. Could there be any other first stone to lay in this foundation? Long ago, your father served other gods. God graciously chose to call your father Abraham, like the passage in Deuteronomy that Brother Rod read earlier when he prayed. So choose this day to serve the Lord. Now there's a lesson here for us, isn't there? Many, I suppose. Israel would see God's gracious election of them more clearly as they thought back to the sin of their forefathers. And you, if you are a Christian today, will see God's gracious election of you more clearly if you think back on the sin and idolatry of your forefathers. So if you grew up in a Christian home, you may not easily recognize God's electing grace of you because it may seem normal or natural for one who grows up in a Christian family to end up becoming a Christian. Go back further. Your heritage doesn't start there. Go back in your heritage long enough and you will see the miracle of God's electing grace in brighter colors. Did your parents grow up in Christians' homes? If not, where would you be apart from God's special electing grace? If they did, did their parents grow up in Christians' homes? They did? Great. Did their parents? Well, if so, great. Did their parents? If you trace your genealogy far enough back, you'll find at some point in history, 
your fathers lived and died serving other gods. They were without hope and without God in the world. And then at some point, God graciously chose and called in such a way that led to him graciously choosing and calling you to faith in the promises, to faith in Christ. So if you're following Jesus today, right, we should also say that's not simply because God graciously chose to save your forefathers. It's ultimately because God graciously chose to save you. Are you saved because God found you to be the most righteous branch on your family tree and so favored you in response? Some of you are laughing. That's, that's just right. No, not because you were righteous, but because of his free grace. He gave you mercy, pure mercy. Mercy unmixed without any spot of human merit or decisiveness. And this is what we celebrate when we sing, I once was lost in darkest night and thought I knew the way. The sin that promised joy in life would lead me to the grave. I had no hope that you would own a rebel to your will. And if you had not loved me first... I would refuse you still. God has been so gracious. In verse 4, God moves from speaking of Israel's election in Abraham and begins retelling the tale of Israel's redemption. So look at verse 4. And to Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau, and I gave Esau the hill country of Seir to possess. But Jacob and his children, the people of promise, went down to Egypt. Well, that's counterintuitive. What happened there? Verse 5, And I sent Moses and Aaron, and I plagued Egypt with what I did in the midst of it. And afterward, I brought you out. And that should have been a moment for ancient Israel to cry, Hallelujah, as they stood gathered before the Lord in Shechem. I brought you out. You are redeemed. And verse 6 continues the story of this great redemption. Then I brought your fathers out of Egypt, and you came to the sea. And the Egyptians pursued your fathers with chariots and horsemen to the Red Sea. And when they cried to the Lord, he put darkness between you and the Egyptians and made the sea come upon them and cover them. And your eyes saw what I did in Egypt, and you lived in the wilderness a long time. Israel, what claim does the Lord have on you that he would ask you to serve him and no one else? Well, listen to him tell you, I plagued Egypt. I brought you out of Egypt. I shielded you with darkness from the army of Egypt. I split the Red Sea to deliver you. I I brought the waters of the Red Sea back on the chariots of Egypt. I saved you. I purchased you. To be no longer the slaves of Pharaoh, but to be made instead the people of the Lord. Remembering God's mighty redemption should have been for Israel an incredibly gripping reason to serve the Lord. And I have to say again, how much more should God's mighty redemption of us in Christ be an incredibly gripping reason 
for you to serve the Lord and then serve him more. The goodness of the Lord. This is, we sing this too, don't we? The goodness of the Lord displayed in our redemption should be like a fetter, like a chain that binds our wandering hearts to him. In verse 8, the Lord gives a third reason his people should serve him and no other. His preservation of them in between Egypt and Canaan. And really, uh, this aspect of God's goodness began in the very end of verse 7 with that small sentence, and you lived in the wilderness a long time. Well, verse 8 adds to that story. Then I brought you to the land of the Amorites, who lived on the other side of the Jornid, so still outside of Canaan. And they fought with you. I gave them into your hand, and you took possession of their land, and I destroyed them before you. So you lived a long time in the wilderness after you were redeemed from Egypt, before you entered into Canaan and received your inheritance, and I preserved you all that time. Verse 9 reminds Israel of another king who fought against Israel during those intervening years. Verse 9, then Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, arose and fought against Israel. And he sent and invited Balaam, the son of Baor, to curse you. Ah, yes, Balak. Do you remember this story? Uh, Balak saw how Israel defeated the kings that we just read about in verse 8. And so Balak called for Balaam, who seemed like he might be a prophet of God. And Balak offered Balaam money, uh, thinking that maybe he could pay Balaam to get God to curse Israel. Well, this, this was a dumb plan. <laughs> Balak thought that the God of Israel might be like the false gods he served, who behave and act like men because they're created by men, gods who can be cajoled and bought off, and who change their minds like a man. But God is not like us. God has no needs like a man has. God has no fickle passions like a man has. God has no shadow or variation due to changing. His purposes stand. And Balak and Balaam found this out, as the Lord reminded Israel in verse 10. Look there now. But I would not listen to Balaam, Indeed, he blessed you, so I delivered you out of his hand. Yes, in a marvelous and somewhat unexpected turn of events, God actually did speak through Balaam concerning Israel, but he did not curse his people as Balak sought. Instead, he blessed and blessed and blessed them. In all the time in between their redemption and their inheritance, God preserved his people. And so God still does today. Preserve his people from the time of their redemption until the time they receive their inheritance, which is kept in heaven for them. And this is what we celebrate when we sing, No power of hell nor scheme of man could ever pluck me from his hand. Till he returns or calls me home, here in the power of Christ I stand. 
Or could Israel really need any more reasons to serve the Lord? They get one anyway. God gives them another. After reminding them of their election in Ur, their redemption in Egypt, their preservation in the wilderness, then he speaks of their inheritance in Canaan. Look at verse 11. It summarizes the story we've looked long at in our study of the book of Joshua. Verse 11. And you went over the Jordan and came to Jericho, and the leaders of Jericho fought against you, and also the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And I gave them into your hand, all of them. I gave them into your hand. I made their land your inheritance, so you can be my people, and I will dwell in your midst as your God. Verses 12 and 13 emphasize how the Lord accomplished this victory by his own strength. Look at verse 12. I sent the hornet before you. We'll come back to that. I sent the hornet before you, which drove them out before you. The two kings of the Amorites, it was not by your sword or by your bow. So the hornet is not some like cool wrestler name for Joshua. I think it's best to see this phrase, I sent the hornet, as a metaphor for God sending the terror of him before Israel. So he told Israel, I'm going to put great fear in your enemies because they'll have heard of me and their hearts will melt when, when you come to them and so they'll flee from you. And in Exodus, when God uses the same language of I'll send the hornets before you, it's right together with him saying, I will send the terror of me before you. That's my best guess. Fortunately, the main point of this verse is not the precise meaning of the hornet. I think it's clear the main point is that God was the one who accomplished the conquest of Canaan. God gave this land as an inheritance. And the last part of the verse showed us that emphatically, didn't it? It was not by your sword. It was not by your bow. Don't go thinking that you have this inheritance because of your own power or righteousness or ingenuity or anything. This inheritance is yours. It really is, but not as a result of your wielding the sword and not as a result of your bending the bow. And so you should think of all the good things that you have as the gift of God in the land. And verse 13 makes that point. Look at verse 13. I gave you a land on which you had not labored in cities that you had not built, and you dwell in them. You eat the fruit of vineyards and olive orchards that you did not plant. I love it. When you consider this good land, this good inheritance, remember how it came to be yours, not your sword, not your bow, not your laboring, not your building, not your planting. I chose you. I made promise to you. I rescued you. I preserved you. I fought for you. I made you inherit these things. I gave you all of this. I gave it to you. I gave it to you. Friends, this is why we have a gospel of grace. Because this is the kind of God that God is. He gives and gives and gives to his people. It's the heart of true religion. We trust God to give. 
what he's promised he will give. So the Lord has set before Israel the foundations for serving him, and it's hard to imagine that there could be a more solid foundation to stand upon from which to say, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Verse 14 is the great hinge point of the chapter, and it transitions into the second major section of our text, the charge to serve the Lord. Look at verse 14 now. Now, therefore, and and that's a big therefore in light of all the things I've just said. Therefore, fear the Lord and serve Him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. So you have election and redemption and preservation and inheritance from Him. So serve Him. Put away whatever else you might be devoted to. Serve Him in faithfulness. Serve Him in sincerity. So don't serve Him hypocritically or half-heartedly or with your mouth while your heart is truly far from Him. Whatever threatens to steal your heart away from the Lord, and I love the forceful directness of this command, put it away. Remove it. Did you notice in particular the idols that Joshua singled out specifically for putting away? Put away the gods your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt. I took your fathers out from beyond the river. Don't serve the gods of the peoples there. I brought your fathers out from Egypt. Don't serve the gods of the peoples there. Don't run back to the darkness I rescued you out of. Why would you want to go back to the sin and darkness that God saved you from? Be very careful not to cast a stone of judgment at Israel here. Consider the log in your own eye. Whenever we Christians sin against the Lord, are we not something like Israelites worshiping idols of Egypt and Babylon? Embracing and desiring what God has saved us from? We are told to put away what Christ has graciously called us out of. Sin. We are told to put away what Christ has powerfully brought us out of. And that's the logic of, of sanctification, of growing in godliness in the New Testament. Live like redeemed men because you are, like heirs of God. In verse 15, Joshua further urges Israel to choose to serve the Lord, and he turns up the temperature a little bit in doing so. Look at verse 15, and if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your fathers, they served in the region beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Joshua begins this sentence by using some really cutting words. If it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord. Wow. 
if it is evil to serve the Lord, do people really come to that conclusion? All the time. A person's sense of justice, of good and evil, will be shaped and for sinners warped by their desires and patterns of thought and the choices that they make. So those who persist in not serving the Lord can and often do actually convince themselves that they are taking the moral high road in not doing so. That it's actually right not to serve the Lord, at least not how He's revealed. And so, in effect, it is evil to serve the Lord in their eyes. I think we see this clearly in the world around us, filled with people who've come to this conclusion that Joshua warns of. Of course, the reasons that God has given to serve Him, the foundations in verses 1 through 13, shows how absolutely preposterous It would be for God's people to conclude this, to conclude that it is evil to serve God in light of all his goodness and power, his moral insanity, truly. And so Joshua goads the people of Israel here with his choose whom you will serve challenge. And the options he gives them is not the true God or idols. He says, if you'll decide serving God isn't the right way to go and you judge it evil in your eyes then which way will you go instead? If it's evil to serve God, then choose who you will serve. And then he gives them some options for them to choose from. Joshua's being a little bit cheeky here, isn't he? If it isn't the Lord, who's it going to be? Want me to give you a list to select from? How about the gods of the people beyond the river? How about the gods of the people in the land you're in? Who do you choose? Chaldean idols, Amorite idols, Egyptian idols? Joshua calls them to declare their allegiance and be definitive. Do not think that you can be wishy-washy and indecisive about whom you will serve. If you will not serve the Lord God, then you will still serve someone or something as your Lord. Those who think that they have broken free from lords and gods are deluded. The question is not whether or not you will esteem and hope in and serve someone or something as your God. You will. The question is rather or not you will esteem and hope in and serve God as your God. You must choose this day whom you will serve. You must choose this day whether you will live like it is good or evil to serve the Lord. God will have no one be deluded into thinking that they remain neutral in relation to him. After Joshua presses the people to consider this, he makes the loyalties of his own heart clear, and he plants his flag and says the words we know and love from the book of Joshua, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Even if you all decide that it is evil for me to go that way, I'm going this way, and I'm taking my household with me. As far as it depends on me, this is devotion to God with a backbone. Are you willing to be judged this way? Are you willing to be judged on a path that is evil, even by others perhaps who profess to be Christians? 
I think this kind of decisive devotion is becoming more necessary for Christians in our age and in our land as the number is increasing of those around us who, who really have concluded it is evil to serve the Lord in one way or another. I wonder if there is even greater faith-fueled courage needed for Joshua to say, as for my house, we will serve the Lord. And then there was needed for him to say, as for me. Well, it's one thing to say, I'll serve the Lord, even if you all judge me to be evil going that way. And it's another thing to say, and so will my household, as far as it depends on me, even if you judge them evil and treat them accordingly. Uh, Perhaps you believe yourself willing to embrace the scorn of the world to serve the Lord. Are you willing to put your children in the path of the world's scorn to see them serving the Lord? How's that for a Mother's Day message? (laughs) Happy Mother's Day. But seriously, would you say with Joshua, as for my household, we will serve the Lord. Even if it makes them ill thought of, makes other people think they're evil, or makes them disadvantaged in the world in some way. What do you want for your household? Really? Really? A comfortable life full of earthly success, or just a path of their own choosing so they can be happy? For them to excel above or even just fit in with other people their age? Or could you sing the words of the song, Jesus, I my cross have taken, with your household in mind. Jesus, I a cross have taken for me and my household, so far as it depends on me. Though it leave them destitute, despised, forsaken, foes may hate and friends disown them, Man may trouble and distress them. Earthly fame and treasure may go for them. Disaster, scorn, and pain may come for them. Let the world despise and leave them. Because the world has left my Savior too. Oh, God help us. Give us this courage which comes from confidence in God's goodness. That's the foundation to be able to to say in truth, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Hope in the good news. All who trust in Christ are pardoned for their idolatries and are given the spirit of Christ to indwell them. And he is not a spirit that grows us in cowardly fear, but gives us boldness and love and self-control And God can steal the spine of even the most cowardly among us. In verse 16, the people of Israel answer Joshua's challenge. Uh, Their response seems like it would be just what you would want to hear. And the people answered, far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. They plant their flag with Joshua. And then in verses 17 through 18... They give the reasons for that choice, and it's basically restating the foundations that God gave them. This is perfect. They've really been listening. Look at verse 17. For it is the Lord our God who brought us and our fathers up from the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, 
and who did those great signs in our sight and preserved us in all the way that we went and among all the peoples through whom we passed. Verse 18, And the Lord drove out before us all the peoples, the Amorites who lived in the land. Therefore, we also will serve the Lord, for he is our God. Oh, that sounds like a great answer. But perhaps Joshua senses their heart might not be in as good of a place as their mouth is. Right? Anyone can say the right thing in the heat of a religious moment. Anyone can say amen in the middle of a rousing sermon. Anyone can walk up to the front of a church while singing I Surrender All. Anyone can check a box on a response card that says, I accepted Christ today. But is it real? Does it endure? Perhaps Joshua is concerned that this pious confession of Israel may have no real root in true repentance from sin and true faith in God's goodness. Perhaps he's concerned Israel is making this profession a little too glibly and not being sober-minded about how much is really involved in a decision to serve the Lord. Maybe some of you think, wow, brother, you are being really hard on Israel right now. I mean, they did pretty good, what they said. Why would I say this? Well, you're about to find out. Joshua's response to the people's stated choice of serving the Lord is stunning. And in fact, one commentator called Joshua's words in verse 19, quote, perhaps the most shocking statement in the Old Testament. That's overstated, for sure. But this really is a surprising thing. Look at verse 19. But Joshua said to the people, you are not able to serve the Lord. For he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. <sighs> you are not able to serve the Lord? That's difficult to understand. Especially as we consider what else is said in this chapter, right? Joshua commanded them to serve the Lord. Joshua said, I will serve the Lord. Israel says they will serve the Lord, but then he tells them that they are not able to serve the Lord. And on top of all that, down in verse 31, we're told Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua. So Israel did serve the Lord, at least in some sense. At least while Joshua was living and leading them. So obviously, then, I think, I think it's obvious, this statement of Joshua cannot mean that Israel was not able to serve the Lord in an absolute sense. In a bare, unqualified, absolute sense. Unable. Can't mean that. Really, what I think is happening here is much like the time that Jesus said, you cannot serve God. You know, in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6. Haven't you read that part of your Bible? Jesus said, you cannot serve God and money. Matthew 6, 24. No one can serve two masters, for he will either hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. Doesn't that sound like Joshua 24? You cannot serve God and money. You can't serve God and 
someone or something else as your God at the same time, whether that's an idol of ancient Canaan, like Baal, or an idol of modern America, like money. So I think Joshua is saying you are not able to serve the Lord if you intend to hang on to your idols at the same time. And I think the context helps us come to that conclusion. Look at verse 19 again, together with verse 20. Joshua said to the people, You are not able to serve the Lord, for He is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve other gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after having done you good. You cannot serve the Lord. You are not able if you intend to serve other gods too. And so note the rationale given in verse 19 for these shocking words. You are not able to serve the Lord for, because... He is a holy God. He is a jealous God. And the Lord's jealousy very directly recalls the command to have no other gods. Exodus 34, 14. Don't serve the gods of the people in Canaan. For you shall worship no other God. For the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous God. God will not enter into any polygamous covenant unions with his people. Joshua tells them, I think, you're not able to serve the Lord, to stun them, much like when Jesus would say something that is quite stunning of how high the bar is to follow him, to stun them into realizing how totalizing of a claim the Lord makes on them when he calls them to serve him. He is driving from them any notion of cheap grace or of faith without repentance. He's driving from them any notion they may still have of the acceptability of serving two masters. And I think he's telling them that because he knows or at least suspects that their hearts are still seriously inclined to idolatry. I say that because of the exchange that follows. Look at verse 21. The people are insistent and perhaps even offended. The people said to Joshua, no, but we will serve the Lord. Joshua says we're not able. Who does he think we is? We are able and we will. Well, perhaps this is exactly what Joshua was after. Challenging them to remember how high a bar serving God really is. To to fortify and strengthen their sense of commitment. In any case... Joshua drills down further in verse 22. Look at verse 22. Then Joshua said to the people, You are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen the Lord to serve him. And they said, We are witnesses. As by these words you'll be justified, by these words you'll be condemned. And they say, Bring it on. And then Joshua says something that makes me think he knows their hearts are actually still inclined toward other gods. That they aren't necessarily thinking rightly about what it means to choose to serve the Lord and embrace His grace. It necessarily has to be a choice to want to be singularly given to 
the Lord. Look at verse 23. He said, Then put away the foreign gods that are among you and incline your heart to the Lord, the God of Israel. You've said you will serve God. Yes. Are you sure? Yes. You're witnesses against yourself for this. Yes, we're witnesses. Then put away the foreign gods that are among you even as we speak. And incline your heart to the Lord. Your heart is still going after other gods. Even as you profess your devotion to the Lord, you're doing that, wanting to keep the door open in your heart to be able to keep running to idols. You know, back in chapter 22, we didn't look at this, but in detail when we covered that chapter, there was another indication that Israel still had a serious idolatry problem. In 22.17, the son of the high priest says, Have we, speaking of all Israel... Have we not had enough of the sin at Peor, which is idolatry, from which even yet we have not cleansed ourselves? There's still idolatry in the camp somehow. Maybe just in the inclinations of the hearts of the people. Maybe there are even graven images still in some of their homes. So you say, I repent and trust God, but I'm not sure you intend to repent of all your sin. And it is totally appropriate and good to tell people who do not want to, do not desire to, and do not intend to repent of their sin, you're not able to serve the Lord if that's where your heart is. The other parts of verse 19 are still relevant. God is still holy. God is still jealous. And God still does not forgive the sin of unrepentant sinners. No one can serve two masters. And we've got to remember what true repentance is. This doesn't mean that you say, I promise I will never sin again. None of us can say that in truth. You will struggle with sin till the day that you die. But true repentance says, I do not want to, I do not desire to, I do not intend to sin again. I hate that I've done that. I hate the thought of doing it again. Jesus said similar things elsewhere in the gospel. He affirmed the same kind of inability to serve God. Luke 14 Jesus said three times that some people cannot be my disciple. It's the language of inability. Not able. If anyone does not hate, meaning in comparison, if anyone loves more, his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Another great Mother's Day text. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me, cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? And then he goes on to say, So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has, cannot be my disciple. So like Christ to the crowds that followed him, Joshua is trying to rouse Israel to truly count the cost. 
to have a true sense of what it means to serve God. Maybe Joshua was even trying to open their eyes to understand their own weakness and sinfulness. So they would cry out to God for help, to not just say, I will follow God's commands, but to say, the strength to follow God's commands could never come from me. God, I want to. You've made me willing. Now make me more able. Please forgive me when I don't. Please help. I think that certain kind of inability is something even Joshua would embrace for himself. To say like David did, I have no good apart from the Lord. To say uh, like Christ taught us, uh, to, to believe that we have no good apart from him. We can do nothing apart from him. That kind of inability we all embrace, even as we can confidently assert that by God's grace, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Well, let's go back to Joshua 24. Start to land the plane. The people of Israel again assert they'll serve the Lord. Verse 24, And the people said to Joshua, The Lord our God we will serve, and his voice we will obey. Uh, Some preachers and commentators find it significant that Israel did not respond to Joshua's direct exhortation to put away idols by explicitly saying that they intended to do so. Instead, just insisted they would serve the Lord. I'm not sure that there's really anything to that, but maybe. What are we to think of Israel here in this chapter? Especially when we read again in verse 31 that they did serve the Lord all the days of Joshua. I think there are two basic options. Perhaps God used this charge of Joshua as a means of grace to secure and and continue the true repentance and profession of faith of, of this generation of Israelites. Or perhaps verse 31 is somewhat ominous and tells us there's a time stamp on Israel's faithfulness. That they serve the Lord in some sense while Joshua is still alive, but after he passed, well... Then the true colors of their heart came out. Maybe the book of Judges makes us think that might be the case. I think there's a purposeful tension here. Apparently, it's, it's not for us to know exactly. You know, it's not made explicit. We're, leaving, we're left wondering, turning the rest of the Bible story, whether or not Israel's profession of faith and loyalty is a good and genuine And really, that's just like real life sometimes, isn't it? We have to leave this scene feeling a little uneasy. But maybe we hear all of these truths and feel a little uneasy about ourselves or about others we know. And that can be okay if that uneasiness makes you run to the Lord and say, God, thank you for how gracious you are. I want to serve you. I need your forgiveness. I I need you to search my heart and show me where there's sin, inclination to sin still. And I know, I know I am not able to serve you in my own strength. In fact, God, I know that there's plenty of inclination to sin still in my heart. My heart is prone to wonder, and I feel it. 
but I do not want to hold on to any of those things. Again, that's the key. I don't desire or intend to pursue it. I want to repent of all of it, even as I recognize my heart is not yet fully sanctified. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And that kind of confession, friends, of not only your sin, but your own sinfulness and moral inability, apart from God's grace, that kind of repentance is not an offense to the God of grace. That is an acceptable sacrifice to the God of grace. And in fact, that kind of repentance is itself a gift of the God of grace to you. That kind of being poor in spirit, of mourning over your sin against God, of being meek, of hungering for righteousness because you don't have it totally. Jesus says if those things characterize you, you're blessed. So I don't want you to have an unbalanced view of God, okay? It is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. There is joy in heaven when a sinner repents. God is holy and jealous, and so you must believe and repent to come to Him. God is merciful and gracious, and so you must also believe that He will receive all who repent and come to Him. If they come not offering anything in themselves, but coming on the basis of what Jesus accomplished for sinners. The Lord is the God who judges idolaters. And the Lord is the God who saw Abraham serving other gods in Ur, and yet took him for himself. In great mercy and power. To close quickly look at the last portion of our text this morning. Verse 25 through 28, Joshua formalized the people's commitment with a ceremony, which as I said earlier is a renewal, I believe, of the covenant God had made with them at Sinai. Look at verse 25. So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day and put in place statutes and rules for them at Shechem. And Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God. And he took a large stone and set it up there under the terebinth that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. And Joshua said to all the people, Behold, this stone shall be a witness for us, against us, for it has heard all the words of the Lord that he spoke to us. Therefore it shall be a witness against you, lest you deal falsely with your God. So Joshua sent the people away, every man to his inheritance. That's the end of the story of Joshua. The curtains close, the screen turns black, and the conclusion is just some words that scroll from the bottom of the screen that say, and this is what happened to the characters after the end of the, this plot. I want to end just by saying that this covenant renewal ceremony here provides an opportunity for us to consider something important and I think is hope-giving in the face of these truths that we've heard, that the covenant that God has made with us in Christ, and the, God, the covenant God promised to make with Israel in Christ, is not like the covenant that God made with Israel at Sinai. It's not like the covenant that God renewed with Israel in Canaan. How's it different? Hebrews 8, 8 through 12. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, 
when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I show no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant, the new covenant, established through the pouring out of Christ's blood. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds, and I will write them on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. So in the new covenant, established by the death of Christ, entered into by all who truly trust in what Christ did for sinners and follow him. God puts his law into our minds and writes his law, even the command to serve him only on our hearts. And so he works in us to will and to do even this command. Now, some people under the old covenant experienced that same reality. Right? Joshua clearly did. God enabled him to serve the Lord and wrote this law on his heart. No doubt there were many others in Israel too. But the difference in the new covenant is that everyone who is a part of the new covenant has the law written on their hearts and so is empowered to walk in repentance and faith and strive for obedience. So if you truly are a Christian, you should have great confidence in God that the work of Christ for us and the work of the Spirit in us and the Father's plan for us empowers us to serve Him. Not perfectly, but actually and increasingly and one day completely. The God who saved us in Christ enables us to say in truth, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Let's pray. God, thank you for the great new covenant that you've made to make all of your covenant people like Joshua and some others were, even under the old covenant, that your laws would be on our hearts. That is, we would want to, we would delight to serve you. We would want to repent of sin. God, thank you. Our repentance is a gift from you. We acknowledge you. Thank you, great God of grace. God, I pray there are, well, so many, so many different ways that different parts of, of this chapter need to be at work in the hearts of people in different places for their good. I pray that you would do that. You alone are wise. And so I pray you and your perfect wisdom would do good to your people, whatever they need. Use this text to do it. We pray this all in the name of Jesus.